friends, the message that Madeline uh, read for us today was like a year ago. I'll reread it again. Please open up your Bibles and follow along with me. It's a passage from Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. And I will be reading from verse 33 to, to 39. So Luke chapter 5, verse 33 to 39. Well, actually, I'll I'll be reading from 29. So I'll be reading in the ESV. You can follow along with whatever version that you have. So, and Levi made him a great feast, made Jesus a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others uh, reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and put it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wine skins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Now, I'm pretty sure you guys are familiar with this parable. It is mentioned in Matthew. It's also mentioned in Mark and also in Luke. And you would have heard the term new wine, new wineskin here and there. And I'm pretty sure if you've been in church long enough, you'll know the story that Jesus mentioned about this parable. Now, I want us to dig a little deeper about what exactly it means to ask for new wine and new wineskin and what it means. So we just read a little bit before when the Pharisees questioned Jesus about, hey, how come your disciples eat and drink and they don't fast or pray? Jesus, actually, before all of this, before coming to Levi's house and feasting together, what Jesus did is he actually went out and sought out disciples. So a few chapters ahead, we see that Jesus went and he found Simon Peter fishing. And he's like, hey, Simon Peter, want to be a follower of mine? Okay, come, follow me. And then he goes to John and James, sons of Zebedee. And he's like, hey, you want to follow me? You want to be my disciple? Okay, cool. Come and follow me. And then the next person he approaches in the Gospel of Luke is a disciple named Levi. And Levi was a tax collector. And Jesus approaches him and says, hey, do you want to follow me? Then give up your tax collecting and then follow me. And Levi does so, which is a huge thing. Because it's one thing for fishermen or common folk to be approached by a rabbi and asking them to be a disciple of him. And a tax collector, someone who is above like in a higher class of society to be approached by a rabbi. And instead of, 
he was actually really wealthy. He was earning a lot of money. He was of a certain social status, but he was actually letting that go to become a disciple of a rabbi under the submission of this teacher's teaching. So it's a huge thing. But Levi does it with a grateful heart. And we see that because he invites Jesus' disciples and all his followers and all the crowd to his house to have a feast where they break bread and they drink wine. So they're celebrating. Levi is celebrating the fact that he has become a follower of Jesus. Now, you know, we see here and there when Jesus is going around and doing all these radical things, we know that the Pharisees and the people of the synagogue, they're always constantly following him and questioning all these things. Jesus, how come your disciples don't do this? Jesus, our disciples do this. How come yours don't do that? And they're doing exactly the same thing that they do all the time. They question Jesus and they say, how come John the Baptist and John the Baptist's disciples, they fast and they pray. Our disciples, they also fast and pray according to the Jewish law. But how come your followers don't? And they just eat and drink all the time, especially with tax collectors and sinners, people that we do not mingle with. And Jesus tosses back with this answer. He refers to himself as the bridegroom. And he says, hey, when you're at a feast and the bridegroom is there, Ain't no way nobody's going to fast. That's a time to celebrate. So we are going to eat, break bread, drink wine, and enjoy this time together. Now, when the bridegroom leaves, that's probably going to be the time where the feast is over. So naturally, you'll go into your regular observances and your, your regular um, religious deeds that you normally observe. That's kind of part of the Jewish culture. They would always go according to the calendar. They would you know, follow these um, feasts or certain Sabbaths and they would refrain from eating or they would fast for certain hours. And that's part of the Jewish culture, but it is only trumped when there is a feast, when there's like a banquet, especially if it's a wedding banquet, that trumps everything. Now forget fasting, forget, you know, doing all these things. We're going to celebrate and we're going to be merry. That is the culture that was back then. And Jesus is telling them, hey, I'm the bridegroom. I'm here. Salvation hit because of Levi. We're going to celebrate. We're not going to mourn and fast. Now, I'm guessing in the Pharisees' mind, they did not compute because Jesus immediately follows up. I think in other scriptures, we always see like if Jesus says something like, oh, in scripture, it says this or "Oh, I'm doing this. Then the Pharisees always have like a comeback or like, oh, doesn't the Bible say this then? But they didn't. And Jesus was like, All right, let me explain to you in this parable. And so Jesus kinds of dumbs it down to them and says, listen, when you make wine, you do not put new wine into old wineskin, right? And I'm guessing this is the tone that Jesus said it to these Pharisees because Jews, wine is a part of their culture. They drink it every day. Actually, they drink it more than water because water, they can't really find a lot of water or clean water. And so they would make wine. They would dilute it with a little bit of water. So daily, they would pretty much be drinking wine all the time. When there's a celebration or there's a feast, they're drinking lots of wine. When there's a Sabbath or something that they need to observe according to the calendar that God has set for them, they're also going to be wine, you know? And so wine is such a big part of the Jewish culture. So they're very familiar of how to make wine and what is the proper way to make wine. And so it's kind of like saying, 
Are you hungry? Then make food and eat. Or one plus one equals two. It's, it's kind of like going down at that level. So he's saying, you know, you want to make wine? You got to make it a new wineskin. You can't do old wineskin. And old wineskin cannot be used because, so when they make wine, usually, you know, um, they would get, uh, harvest the grapes and then they would crush it like either in a vat, either with a paddle or they would stomp on it. And with the juice, they would pour it into animal skins, right? Back then they didn't have like bottles and stuff. And so they would pour it into animal skin. Most of the time they did goat skin or lamb skin because they're like really flexible. They're soft. And so when the fermentation process happens with the wine, that's when the wine skin expands. Yeah, we're celebrating here. That's why, you know, um, that's wines can expand. So it has to be flexible because if it's hard and the fermentation process happens, what would happen? The wine skin would break, right? It will crack and then you'll ruin the wine skin and you'll get rid of the wine as well. And so it's very, it's kind of like, duh, you don't do it in old wine skin. Now, when you're not using the wine skin, what usually happens is you kind of leave it aside and the, cult, the climate that they were in is really hot. It was really dry. And so the wineskin would dry up real quick. It dries up, it becomes really hard, and it'll start to crack. So if you've ever seen leather, like, dried and cracked, that's kind of like what you can imagine, right? And if it's in that state, you cannot put in new wine or else it'll just break. So that's why Jesus is saying, yeah, you need to have new wineskin in order to make wine. Now, this parable is pointing to the fact and i believe that jesus is stating this parable because he's trying to tell the pharisees look you might argue that we are not observing certain traditions that you are going along to but guess what i am doing a new thing here therefore we don't necessarily need to abide by what you think is right like the old structure that you guys have been observing throughout the centuries, it's not necessarily applying to what it is happening right now because I am bringing in something new. And they knew that Jesus was bringing something very new, very radical, because that's why they're constantly questioning Jesus. Jesus, why do you do this? Jesus, why does your disciple do something different? It's because Jesus is already doing something very new to the previous Jewish culture. And so that's why Jesus is saying, the new thing that I am doing cannot be observed with the old thing that you guys have been doing. The new wine that I'm bringing in cannot be contained in the old wineskin that you guys used. And so he's pointing out uh, these traditions that were very, very strictly observed by these Pharisees and their works of law. Not that it was bad, but because they were pointing so much to legalism. They were saying, if you don't observe by this, you are unrighteous. If you don't observe this, you're going to be punished by God. You don't have right standing with God. You will be punished. That's kind of the mindset that they were attacking Jesus with. And so Jesus is saying, hey, no, 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 no. Listen, I'm bringing something new. And you can't continue this kind of a lifestyle if you want this new thing with me. Because the new thing that I am bringing in is grace by faith. It's not works where you meet up to certain standards and you earn your righteousness. But because I am going to pay the price, you are just going to receive it by believing that I have stand in the line to meet all those standards on behalf of you. And that's why you don't have to observe all those laws. You don't have to be too restricted by all these things. It's a time to rejoice. It's a time to be merry. It's a time to celebrate. And that's what Jesus is trying to point out to the Pharisees by giving this parable. 
simply saying, he's saying that grace and law does not mix. It's kind of like triggering back the Galatians series, right? Grace and law does not mix. Like either you receive fully by grace as a gift by faith or else you work completely crossing the T's, dotting the I's, you meet up to the, all the laws, all the standards, and you are righteous with God. It's one or the two. It cannot be somewhere in the middle. And so Jesus is showing that what he is doing, the reason why he came is not so that we can f- perfectly fulfill the law, but he is going to fulfill it on behalf of us, and we just simply need to rejoice with him. Now, I think that's the first layer. The first layer to this passage is this very simple, basic gospel message. But if we look at the wording of that Jesus is using between like the new, like the new in the English, uh, like a lot of things kind of get lost in translation. No, not a lot. Just a little bit. Like the nuances get lost. And the word that Jesus used for new wineskin, that new is really significant because when you're looking at something very brand new in the Greek, the term is neo. You guys heard of neo, right? It means like completely brand new, a complete new thing. But the word that Jesus uses here for new wineskin is actually kainos. Everybody say kainos. Wow, okay. (laughs) All right, kainos does mean new, but the nuance behind it is not something completely brand new. It's actually something that is renewed. So when Jesus is comparing old wineskin and new wineskin, He's not only necessarily saying completely brand new wineskin. He's saying old wineskin that has to be renewed in order to pour in new wine. So how do Jews renew old wineskin when it's all hard and, you know, it's all cracking and crusty and stuff like that, right? What they would do is they would take this old wineskin and they would dunk it in water. And while it's in water, they would pound it with rocks so that the leather gets soft, right? They would pound it with rocks. And after that, they would take it out and they would rub olive oil all over it. So the oil kind of contains like the moisture that the leather is soaking up. And they would do this over and over again until the leather is supple and soft enough to expand again for wine to be poured into. That is the process of renewing old wineskin. Mind you, it was not an easy task. It took a lot of hard pounding, submerging in water, rubbing of oil again and again until it was soft enough. So I think what Jesus is technically saying here is we're not completely throwing out everything that is old. We're not completely throwing out the Jewish traditions. I'm just saying that we need to renew our minds, renew the structure in which you believe these things because because I am pouring new wine, right? And the old cannot be contained. Okay, I'm, I'm getting my stuff. Like we need to renew our minds and our thinking. Actually, the Jewish tradition and the Jewish culture and the laws, we still learn about it, right? We still have the Old Testament. We still go back to it. And there's a reason because there's something that we learn from the Old Testament that seeps into the New Testament, that gives us a greater understanding of the New Testament, that enriches our understanding of God's grace. We learn this very thoroughly in our Galatians series, that the OT or the law is there because... It shows us that we cannot meet up to all the standards, right? 
Like we look throughout the entire Old Testament. We look from the very beginning, Adam and Eve. Hey, just one thing. Don't eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just don't eat from that one tree. That's all you need to do. They fail. And then Cain and Abel. Oh, fail again. Fail again. Okay, Noah, I'm going to renew everything with you and your family. And after the flood and everything, and oh, okay, it's time for renewal. And then what happens? One of Noah's sons, Ham, he you know, looks at his father inappropriately. And so sin enters again and again. And then the Tower of Babel, it just kind of constantly, constantly shows just how much people cannot meet up to the holiness and the standard of God. It shows that we are not perfect. And it shows that we are in utter need of a savior and that we can't be our own saviors. So the problem is, is that the Pharisees are sticking to, oh, no, we need to meet all these standards. But Jesus is saying, I get that there are these standards, but you don't need to fulfill it. That's the renewing of the wineskin. Now, I think a lot of people will probably stop there. They will probably stop, okay, this is the gospel. This is what Jesus is trying to talk about. But when I look at the entire flow of the story, because back then they didn't have like division of chapters. They didn't have division of verses and things like that. It's like a whole fluid story that, Luke is writing in this gospel, right? And it begins with this notion of the feast. Levi deciding to follow Jesus, and then the feast at his house, and then Jesus comes and answers back with this bridegroom illustration, and then after that, it's the wineskin illustration. So it goes from Levi, feast, and then bridegroom, and wineskin. It kind of doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Like, it seems like it's all over the place. Are you just making, like, an illustration or what is going on here? But I believe if we dig deeper into the Jewish tradition and we have an understanding of the Jewish wedding culture, we get an understanding of why Jesus kind of went along these lines when he talked to the Pharisees, why he brought up the feast and why he brought up the bridegroom, and eventually it led to the new wineskin. Now, I don't know if you guys have been to Jewish weddings before. Um, they have a little different, different elements that they add to, like the typical Western wedding that might have. They have, you know, you know, the drinking of the wine, the breaking of the cup, and things like that. That's like a, a, a shorter version or like... Um, it's like mixed with like the more modern version of what they do. But back in the ancient Jewish days... Their wedding custom, it took a really long time. I'm going to bust out a lot of Hebrew, but do not be afraid. I'll explain everything to you, okay? This is the ancient Jewish wedding custom. The first step is called the shindakin. Everybody say shindakin. Okay, I don't think that's the right pronunciation, but that's what I have. Now, the very first step, the shindakin, what happens is, this is the arraignment before the actual wedding. So what uh, a bridegroom or the groom's father does is when his son is of age to get married, he goes out and looks for a bride that is suitable for his son. And he chooses that bride. And he says, oh, that woman is good for my son. I think she's going to be a suitable mate for my son. And so the father of the groom would send out his servants or he himself would go to the family of the bride and say, hey, look, I want your daughter to be wed to my son. And they make that initial like agreement, right? We see this example in Genesis when Abraham is looking for a wife for Isaac. He sends out his servants and he find, the servant finds Rebekah and brings it back to Isaac, right? And so that's the very first step. 
The next step after that is the wet marriage contract. So this is called ketubah, ketubah. Now this marriage contract is between the groom and the bride-to-be. And what the groom, it's, it's like a written document, like an actual contract. And the groom writes down, oh, okay, I promise and I make a vow that I will support my wife, I will love her, da-da-da-da-da, and he writes it down. And then the bride also writes those things down. In addition to that, she also states her um, contents of dowry or financial status. Like these are the things that, you know, da-da-da. And so they make like an agreement in an actual document. So that's the next thing. And then right after that, what happens is there's a bridal payment, okay? Bridal payment. I know it's like a really long process, right? A bridal payment. And so the, the father of the groom and his household, they prepare all these goods. Like they prepare camels and goats and linen, whatever that is co- considered wealth to them. And they present it to the family of the bride. Because initially the bride is going to be married into the family of the man, right? And so they give this as like a payment, like a bridal payment. And then after that is a public declaration of marriage. Now, stay with me just a little bit longer, okay? I'm only halfway. It's really long. It's a public declaration of marriage, and they call it the engagement ceremony. That's a little different than an actual engagement. Um, so what they do, what they do, this is called the mikveh, okay? What they do is they have like this canopy, right? And they set it up, and then they gather all the people in the town, and the uh, bridegroom and the bride is there, and they make like a public declaration, we are going to be wed roughly a year from now. We are going to get married. And they do this public declaration. And they have like certain stuff they do, like they drink wine from each cup and all, the, all these things. And they exchange vows. But this is like somewhere between an actual marriage and an engagement. So they are to be wed, and they're not allowed to consummate the marriage. But they're not allowed to break it either. And if they want to break this, they have to go through a divorce. So it's somewhere like in between. So when we see Mary and Joseph in the story of Jesus and his birth, right? Mary becomes pregnant with Jesus by the Holy Spirit, right? And then Joseph is like, oh, shoot, did Mary sleep around with some other guy? Shoot, I, I, I got I to divorce her. Like, I can't stay with a wife that's unfaithful to me. That is the stage that Joseph and Mary was in. It was the mikveh stage. They made this public declaration that they are going to get married, but they were kind of separated in that point. And so that's why Joseph is saying, oh, yeah, I should divorce her. It's because they were in that stage. Now, after this, what happens is the bridegroom goes back home. And what he does is he prepares a house for his bride that they're going to live in together. And usually it's back at his father's house. Uh, It'll be like another additional room or an area that will be attached to his father's house. Or like another smaller house that is in within like the neighborhood that his father lives in. And he prepares that for his bride. Meanwhile, the bride is at her home, and she prepares the garments that she's going to wear on her wedding. So she's going to prepare her wedding dress. She also prepares lamps. We, I, I know some of you might know the parable of, like, the virgins and the lamps, right? They are waiting for the bridegroom, and at night what they do is they light up the lamps, and they hold it up to their face because they want to make sure that the bridegroom recognizes that they're the bridal party. And so they prepare the lamps and they prepare the oil. And on top of that, they prepare the feast. Now, wedding feast. Their wedding feast is really long. It's not just a one-day thing. They do it for seven days straight. And the entire town celebrates with them. So there's going to be a lot and a lot of wine, right? (laughs) A lot and a lot of wine that is going to be prepared, right? 
And I believe that Jesus leads up to this feast, and he brings up and refers himself to the bridegroom, I believe for the first time, because of this connection of a feast and a celebration, a wedding celebration, a wedding feast to the bridegroom. And he's trying to draw this parallel between God's relationship with his people and how the Jewish marriage tradition continues along. Like this journey of the Jewish marriage tradition and the journey that God is taking him and his people on, right? We see so much parallel. We know that right now, uh, Jesus is where? At the right hand of the Father in heaven, on the throne, right? So he is separated from us. Oh, sorry. Let's backtrack a little bit. In the beginning, what is God chose us, right? God first chose a nation. God first chose a person. God chose. In Ephesians 1, 4, it says, just as he chose us before the foundation of the world, so God first chose us. It's kind of like the very first stage of the Jewish marriage where the father chooses the bride who is worthy of the bridegroom, right? And then it goes on to the what? The legal contract. It's like a written document, a covenant, a vow, something that is written out, the word of God, the Ten Commandments, saying that, hey, I promise to be with you and you with me. That is the document that is made. And then later on, what's the bridal payment is made. Jesus died on the cross and he shed his blood, what? To purchase us. That is the price that he paid so that we can have this communion with God, right? And now Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. So we're separated. And what it says in John 14, Jesus says, For I go and prepare a place for you. He says, There are many rooms in my house in the house of my father, but I go and prepare a place for you. Jesus, as a bridegroom, is preparing a place for his bride and waiting for the day to come when that place is ready and when the bride is finally ready to receive the bridegroom, right? There's so many parallels that are drawing, and I believe this is where we actually get the main gist of this message, not just simply in the simple gospel message, but in the message that, Jesus is returning again. And as a church, as his bride, how we are preparing. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not about legalism again. It's not about certain standards that we meet. Because what did Jesus say in this very passage? He says, how can the the people and the guests at this feast fast when the bridegroom is with them? But there is going to come a time when the bridegroom is going to be separated and then... That's the time when they're going to fast. What does fasting create? It creates hunger. It creates a desire and a yearning. And that is what I believe Jesus is talking about. And right now is a time where the bridegroom is separated from the church, the bride. And I believe that this is a time where God is asking us to cultivate that hunger or that yearning or that longing for Jesus to come back again. Jesus, hurry and prepare that place where we can be one with you. Hurry and come back for your bride. We are waiting for you. We are ready. We have our garments for that day. We have the lamp and the oil and the fire that is burning, and we are waiting for you. We want you. We want to see you. That anticipation, I believe, is what Jesus is trying to point out here for us. And in the passage of Luke in particular, it ends with Jesus telling the Pharisees, no one after drinking old wine desires new, 
for it says the old is good. And this is Jesus' way of saying, you know, once you have a taste for or you get used to something that you are already used to, you're not going to want to change because change is uncomfortable. Change is in, it's inconvenient. It's uncomfortable. You don't want to do it. But it's like, are we going to remain in that old wineskin? Are we going to remain in a place where we are hard and we are not malleable? Or are we going to allow God to put us underwater and just pounding us with rocks, um, rubbing oil on it? What does water signify? The word of God. Are, are, are we going to allow for the word of God to really seep deep within us so that we are made soft by his word? Are we going to be pressed under the pounding of the rocks and allow for God to mold us in that way? Are we going to allow the Holy Spirit, the oil, to rub on us so that we continue to obtain by the word of God? Are we going to allow God to make us into a kind of swineskin, or are we going to stay the old? I believe that is what Jesus is challenging us here in this passage. It's not easy, and it doesn't really sound pleasant. Who wants to go dunked underwater, pounded by rocks, rubbed with olive oil, and repeat that process again until you are made into a supple and soft, malleable person or a church for new wine? It's uncomfortable. It's inconvenient. But I believe because we don't just look at the now, because we look at the joy that is set before us, because we look at the future where Jesus is going to come and make all things completely new, where we are going to be completely one with him, he with us and us with him, perfect reunion, that allows for us to gladly surrender to God take us through that journey of making us new again, to bring us through that kainos process. And I think that this message in particular was really highlighted to me in this season, especially for New Philly. I know many of you have been hearing or already know, like there's a lot of transitions going on. And I believe Somewhere deep down, we've gotten used to certain things, or maybe there are some areas where we feel complacent, or there's apathy, or our hearts are just hardened by certain things. And I know it's not easy. I myself personally experience it as well. It's not easy for change. It's inconvenient. It's uncomfortable. But I would rather go through that process. I would rather go through the pounding of the rocks and being dunked in water than to be found as an old wineskin where new wine cannot be contained. I would rather go through that process. And when Jesus comes back and he can look at us and be like, wow, you are the bride that I was waiting for. You are the bride that I have been waiting for all my life. Now let's spend an eternity together in perfection. So church, this is my prayer for you guys. My prayer is that thinking about the joy set before us, thinking of eternity, not just the next year or five years or 10 years down the road. But waiting and longing for the day where we finally get to see Jesus face to face. That we would gladly submit ourselves, our own hearts, our own personal devotion and the devotion of this church into the hands of God. So that after we have been tested 
After we've been tried, we've been refined, we will be found blameless and without blemish before him. That we would be the church, the bride that is completely worthy to be with Jesus.